It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. As the Seahawks look to wrap up their pre-draft evaluation process, they'll be bringing in some intriguing regional prospects for their local pro day. Dallas Cooper and I will be diving into several of those prospects that will be at the VMAC today on our latest installment of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for our Thursday episode by my co-host, Dallas Cooper, and a special thanks, as always, to all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We're now two weeks away from the 2023 NFL drafts. We'll be taking a look at some of the regional prospects that will be visiting the Seahawks for their local pro day today. And we'll be checking out the Seahawks' depth chart on defense, where things stand along the defensive line, linebacker, and in the secondary. Plus, we'll be taking a look back at John Schneider's previous 13 drafts and where the sweet spots have been at on offensive position groups, where they've been able to find the most success at each of those groups, finding talented players to add to their roster. Jam-packed episode, so let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. We are quickly approaching the 2023 NFL Draft. Most of the hay is in the barn. Teams are wrapping up their last couple of things on the agenda as far as evaluating players is concerned. There's top 30 visits still going on. And teams are also having their local pro days. The Seahawks holding theirs today at the VMAC. This allows them to bring in local players from colleges and high schools that don't count against the top 30 visits. And typically, Dallas, most of these players are smaller school prospects that have played at local high schools or they are at bigger schools, but they are viewed as undrafted caliber players that the Seahawks might bring in for tryouts or as a signed undrafted free agent. But this year, the Seahawks have brought in a few high-profile players from Oregon State that were all Pac-12 selections, cornerback Najon Wright, as well as safety Jaden Grant. And this creates some fascination as far as some day three prospects for the Seahawks to potentially add to their secondary. The Seahawks have had great value when picking late in the draft. They've done a good job, especially on the defensive side of the ball, finding quality talent to fill roles, especially in round six, seven, potentially even undrafted. And these local pro days are the perfect opportunities to find guys who are projected to be around those spots. A guy like Najon Wright is very intriguing as his brother, Nashon Wright, is already in the NFL, plays for the Cowboys, and is this corner and Rajon Wright, his, the brother that we're talking about, Rajon was a ball hawk. It's very interesting watching him. He's a lanky corner, and that's typically what the Seahawks like. But late in the draft, this could be a tremendous value, as recently he shot up draft boards. Jaden Grant, he's a safety, didn't really impress as much with the 40 time, had a slower time, 
although his instincts could provide good value, especially being a rotational backup safety in the next level. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by Wright because of his size, his length, and his ball skills. And we're talking about a a player that has been on the radar for people for a long time because he was one of the standouts on Netflix's hit show, Last Chance You. And so a lot of people know about him without even watching Oregon State, but he has gone from being a lightly recruited junior college prospect into an all-pack 12 cornerback. He was a first-team selection last year for the Beavers, had three interceptions, and there are some things in his game that you can nitpick at, and he's a pretty skinny, slender corner, just like his brother who plays for the Cowboys is, and his brother's a little bit taller at 6'4", but still, this corner is six foot two. He's got good athleticism. We haven't gotten to see his testing numbers because he didn't work out at the combine and he didn't work out at Oregon State's pro day due to undisclosed reasons. I was told that there were some injuries that were at play there, and so he hasn't been fully healthy. Maybe he does fully participate an unofficial top 30 visit, so to speak, with a local prospect. But he is a player that has been getting some buzz early day three, potentially in this really deep cornerback class. As for Jaden Grant, as you mentioned, 4.73 40-yard dash. That is a pretty slow time for a safety, especially one that isn't built like, say, Cam Chancellor. He's around six foot, 195 pounds, so he's not a big safety per se. But he also had a 6.87 second three cone. And that matters a lot to me when I'm looking at potential box safeties because that indicates plus change of direction skills. That would have been the second fastest three cone at the combine in the safety group. Now, only a handful of safeties actually ran that drill at the combine. But still, that is a really good time for a safety. He also had a 37-inch vertical jump. So you can see the explosiveness, the change of direction. He just doesn't have the top line speed and when you watch the film you also see that but he was also a second team all pack 12 selection had a handful of interceptions this year had four and a half tackles for loss he can play some in the box so with ryan neal now being in tampa bay maybe this is a guy that you can look at as a potential successor to fill that reserve role and also star in special teams so both these guys are players that i think could be on seattle's board as draftable players not undrafted players the guys they could actually pick on day three to add some depth to their secondary. Now, the last name that we had on here, we don't know all the players that are going to be at this workout today. However, we do know that Karsten Battles, the long snapper from Oregon, is going to be in attendance today. Now, there are a lot of our listeners are going to say, a long snapper, why is that a big deal? But Seahawks currently do not have one on the roster. Tyler Ott and Carson Tinker are both free agents. They've been working out for other teams. The Seahawks have not brought either one of them back yet to this point. I would be surprised if one of those players is not re-signed, but they could be looking towards bringing in a rookie. And Battles is a guy that is very battle-tested. 61 games at Oregon dating back to 2018 where he has been the primary snapper on field goals, extra points, and punts. So he's got a ton of experience. He's viewed as one of the better long snappers in college football. So that might be a name that ends up resonating from this local pro day as an undrafted player. I would not see them drafting a long snapper, but he might be one of their priority signings because they currently don't have anybody on the roster. And Dallas, that is a very important position that just doesn't get a lot of attention unless you mess up. I love that last part that you brought up. It gets absolutely zero attention until you mess up. And when you do mess up, when the field goal unit's on, 
typically those are big situations when you really need those points. And as a and long snappers, they really are important. Often overlooked, but as you said, the Seahawks currently don't have a long snapper on the roster. I think they're probably going to be looking to bring in a couple of rookies, start a competition in training camp, maybe you re-sign one of those guys back, and you just have a training camp battle and let the best man win. If a rookie wins, now you have a long snapper for a long time. Yeah, an affordable one because Tyler Ott was on the upper end of the scale in terms of pay for long snappers. And we saw this with Clint Gresham when he was the long snapper for a long time too, that the Seahawks ended up paying him. And again, long snapper big contracts are still not a lot of money compared to other positions. But still, you want to have that league minimum or under a million per year contract for your long snapper. You get that luxury easily with an undrafted free agent that you sign and you have the flexibility to hold on to them as exclusive rights, free agents and as restricted free agents, even though they might be having that free agent tag, it gives you a lot of flexibility. And so I think the Seahawks will bring in at least one battles being an intriguing one from the area that has been one of the better long snappers in college football. So again, this is typically an event that allows the Seahawks to see a number of players that are not top prospects, maybe not draftable prospects, but guys that could come in and compete during the offseason program. But there are a few guys there that I think have a chance to get drafted and a few of them that will be priority free agents. We don't know other players that are there as well. There could be a few other players from Washington, Oregon, and Oregon State, some of the other bigger programs in the region that – would be set up to potentially be drafted. And so it is an important part of the process and it's always near the tail end and it gives the Seahawks a chance to continue evaluating up to a few weeks before the NFL draft arrives. Coming up next, we're going to check out Seattle's defensive depth chart. Now the free agency is basically over aside from a few small signings here and there. We're going to check out where things stand along the defensive line, linebacker, and in the secondary coming up next year on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This episode is brought your way by Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious snack but don't want all the sugar and calories, then you need the best tasting protein bar ever. That's Built Bar. You got to try it. If you're like me and you want to make healthier snack choices but you don't want to compromise on taste, I've got the thing for you. Built Bars are healthy and taste amazing. You won't even think they're good for you. 100% real chocolate. That's right, 100% real chocolate. And unbelievable flavors like churro, peanut butter, brownie, my personal favorite, and cookies and cream. I'm not sure how Built does it, but these bars taste like a candy bar while maintaining amazing macros. And what's even better is that they're healthy for you, only 130 calories, four grams of sugar, and a whopping 17 grams of protein. And now you don't need to wait to get a box. For years, we've been telling you about ordering Built Bars at Built.com, but now you can get them at your local Walmart or Sam's Club while you can still get your specialty flavors at Built.com. That's right. Head to your nearest Walmart today, walk to the pharmacy section, and grab yourself a box of Built Bars. You can pick up a four-bar box of cookies and cream, double chocolate, coconut puff and if you're near a sam's club run in and grab a 13 bar box with other hit flavors such as brownie batter puff and churro puff you can thank me later is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements maybe it's time for a rebuild or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the lombardi trophy either way join keith sanchez and damian parson for mock draft monday on the locked on nfl draft podcast They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. 
part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You're listening to the Thursday episode of Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined for today's show by my co-host, Dallas Cooper. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Make sure to check out our brand new NFL Draft newsletter. Just had a new one that was posted. Luke Inman is doing a fantastic job putting that together. You can check out this free resource at LockedOnPodcast.com slash newsletters to sign up for your free NFL Draft newsletter. We've spent so much time the last couple of podcasts, a couple episodes here, talking about the draft, and for good reason. It's almost here. This is a big time of year for teams to be looking towards their future. And at the same time, you have to consider the players that are currently on the roster and where things stand when you're going into the draft to try to make the best picks for the present and the future. So let's check out the depth chart for the Seahawks on defense, Dallas. And I think the biggest gaping hole, we've been talking about it for weeks, the decision to move on from Al Woods, releasing Quentin Jefferson, Shelby Harris as well. Brian Monet is the only nose tackle on the Seahawks roster right now. They only have five defensive tackles on the roster in general. And one of them, Jared Hewitt, has never even played in a regular season game. Miles Adams still has less than 250 defensive snaps on his resume. So it's a pretty inexperienced group on top of that. This seems to be the biggest issue that needs to be addressed by the Seahawks moving forward, not just the draft, but finding a way to have a little bit of salary cap space. So maybe they can bring back a player like Al Woods or add some veterans to that front line that stands out as the most glaring area of concern right now. The nose tackle position. When we were making the depth chart before the show, we both alluded that there's nothing there. You have Brian Monet who is currently injured and then no one else who is capable of being a zero tech or a one tech. And that's a huge problem in Seattle as the run defense was a huge problem last year, yet the best run defender on the roster isn't back on the team. And they haven't done so far. There isn't, hasn't been moves made to supplement that. And with Brian Monet being out, it really forces the Seahawks to have to use multiple picks could be, Maybe one early in the draft, one late in the draft. Maybe if they want to risk it, two later in the draft. But currently on the roster, they need that nose tackle. And there's also another worry as Jaron Reed signing back, he's going to be the defensive end in the 3-4 base opposite of Draymond Jones. However, Jaron Reed had struggles these past couple seasons. And there is a risk right there with Jaron Reed being your starter and Miles Adams being the backup. That's a lot of snaps that Jaron Reed is going to be expected to play as the depth chart is currently constructed. Yeah, I think that that is something that the Seahawks are going to have to figure out because I don't necessarily know at this point if Jaron Reed, maybe he's still a starter caliber player, but I don't know that he's a guy that can play the workload that he did during his first stint with the team. And maybe they consider playing him some at nose tackle. He did that some for them. I think the misconception is that the Seahawks have gone from a 4-3 to a 3-4 last year, and they had never done that before. There's plenty of evidence that they played some 3-4 fronts, some odd fronts, their bare fronts, and Jaron Reed was on the roster when they were doing that in 2020. So he has some experience playing at the nose tackle position. I just don't think that's the best spot for him. So maybe he can give you some snaps there, but 
unless they bring back Puna Ford or an Al Woods or somebody like that. Shelby Harris can play nose tackle as well. Unless they make a move on that front, I'm with you. They're going to have to use at least one, maybe two picks to just address the nose tackle position. And they might not be looking for that 350-pound behemoth. They might be looking for a guy like Keanu Benton, who's 315, but is really hard to move and is a good athlete, can play that nose tackle position. There's different options they have there. It doesn't have to be an Al Woods body type, although it'd be nice to have at least one or two players like that on your roster. And Assuming Brian Monet is going to miss at least half the season, that that creates a major conundrum there for them as they try to figure out what the future holds in the middle of their defensive line. At the linebacker position, I think in the short term, the Seahawks are definitely in a better position than they were a few weeks ago. Bringing back Bobby Wagner, who's still a very solid player heading towards his 33rd birthday. Devin Bush is the wild card in all this. We saw the talent from him with the Pittsburgh Steelers as a rookie, a top 10 pick. Then he suffered a torn ACL. He has not been the same player the last couple of years. And Jordan Brooks, like Brian Monet, we don't know when he's going to be back, coming back from a torn ACL of his own. That's another wild card in this. There are certainly still some question marks, but I think bringing back number 54 and signing Devin Bush, a guy who has started a lot of games and still only 24 years old, it at least provides some optimism in the short term that they're going to be able to weather the storm at least till Jordan Brooks gets back. I'd be surprised if they don't add another linebacker to this group in the draft as well. Wagner provides exactly what they needed, especially for the season. As you said, losing Cody, Cody Barton in free agency, Jordan Brooks injured. You needed stability at the linebacker spot. Yeah. And yes, you brought in Devin Bush. And as you said, high potential, former top 10 pick, but there have been a couple years where he struggled. And a lot of that has been due to injury. Therefore, you bring back Bobby Wagner, and that proves your linebacking core staple, at least enough to get away with it until Jordan Brooks comes back. And I think John Radigan is another player to keep an eye on at that position group too because the Seahawks are very high on him, and he had his own ACL injury last year. This has been a position group that has been plagued by knee injuries for whatever reason. But – I think that they feel better, at least in the short term, than what they did when they lost Cody Barton. I mean, things were looking pretty bare. It was a bare covered at the linebacker position. And as far as the secondary is concerned, when this group is healthy, that is the big if here. Jamal Adams is coming off the torn quad tendon. He's had shoulder injuries. He's had finger injuries. He'd love to see number 33 just be able to play a full season healthy without getting banged up. But his playing style just makes that so difficult especially his size. You're hoping you're going to get him back, but you've got an insurance policy now in Julian Love, who I think is going to play 85 to 90% of the snaps for this defense. I don't expect that they're going to be playing in this base look very often. I think they're going to be in sub packages to get three safeties on the field. You know Quandre Diggs is going to be out there. They're hoping Adams is there, and you have Julian Love. And, of course, Tariq Woolen at the right cornerback position. Mike Jackson right now coming off a very solid season of his own is the starter at left corner. That might be the biggest thing here when we're looking away from injuries. I like what the Seahawks have at safety if everybody is healthy, even without Ryan Neal. And they like Joey Blunt as well. I think that the cornerback position, it's not necessarily an area of need, but as I talked about on yesterday's podcast in my mock draft, Pete Carroll has not had the chance to draft a corner, a top flight corner, in the top five picks in his entire time here in Seattle. 
And so a player like Devin Witherspoon or Christian Gonzalez might make sense there. And, and you could make an argument for making that pick to upgrade across from Tariq Woolen. And so with this being such a good cornerback class, I would anticipate they're going to at some point add somebody there, but it might not just be a depth addition. And that's what makes this a really fascinating situation for the Seahawks at corner, because you can justify picking somebody early on that can upgrade that position. At the same time, you are confident in Mike Jackson and maybe Trey Brown to be able to handle that spot as well. It's a good position to be in. It's an interesting spot because, as you said, Mike Jackson, Tariq Woolen both played really well last season. Yeah. Although the Seahawks could always upgrade, especially at the left cornerback position. Tariq Woolen, he's going to be your cornerback of the future. You're going to ride with him. He's the guy. As your left cornerback position, I wouldn't be surprised, as you said, Pete Carroll loves his cornerback play, and he's rarely had the opportunity to pick high in the draft, especially with the opportunity to get a cornerback. Now, it might not be at pick five with Witherspoon. That That's a little bit of a – that's something that could happen, but it might even be a pick at, like, 20. Because of the two first-round picks, that gives you the opportunity to go after a position where – if the best player available does fall to 20, potentially a corner like Deontay Banks that they're interested in, he could be the guy at 20 for them. Yeah, I'm really fascinated to see what happens at that position because this is such a deep draft class. And you can make the argument, and I agree with this argument usually, you can make the argument, well, if it's such a deep class, then why not get a guy that would normally be a day two pick on day three? And that's what Pete Carroll loves to do at the quarterback position, draft late round guys and develop them. But, again, you haven't had that chance to go after a top corner. Like, I'm telling you, if Sauce Gardner and maybe even uh, Derek Stingley from LSU last year, one of those guys was on the board at number nine. I know they needed to tackle. That's the route they were most likely going to go. But you can't tell me Pete Carroll wouldn't have been having some interesting discussions with John Schneider about either one of those players because he has had the chance to draft an elite corner like that. And there's a really good success rate at that position with top five picks in the last 13 years, too. The biggest bust from that position group during this time is Jeff Okuda, who's still only been in the league for three years. The Falcons just traded for him. They still believe that he can be a top flight corner. So you've got a very good hit rate at that position. And I think that just makes an interesting discussion for the front office in the draft room in the early rounds trying to figure out when they're going to pick a corner. They haven't picked one earlier than the third. I would not be surprised if they end up breaking that trend this year and pick one a little bit earlier, even if it is not necessarily a position where they have to find an upgrade for their secondary. When we return, we are going to shift our focus back to the draft with a bit of a historical perspective. We're going to be looking at the sweet spot at each offensive position group where John Schneider and company have had the best success finding key contributors to add to the roster. We'll get to that next here on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. 
You're listening to the Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined for today's episode by my co-host, Dallas Cooper. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there. As always, whether you're listening in nearby Alaska or across the country in New York, we greatly appreciate you making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And for your second listen, don't forget to check out the Locked on NFL Scouting Podcast with the Draft Dudes. From free agency to the draft, salary cap management, and more, join NFL experts Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino as they take you through what it's like to build a successful NFL franchise every Monday through Friday. Find Locked in NFL Scouting with the Draft Dudes wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Let's shift our attention back towards the draft. We've been talking so much about prospects at each position group, and the Seahawks have 10 picks. They have four in the first two rounds, so a great opportunity for them to add talent. But I wanted to take a step back today, Dallas, from a historical perspective and look at where the Seahawks under John Schneider and Pete Carroll have had the most success picking players from offensive position groups. Now, let's start at quarterback. And I'm going to be honest, this is going to be a very quick discussion because when we're looking at best pick and worst pick, you don't have a lot of options when you've only picked two players at a position group. And that happens to be the case for John Schneider. I know he regrets that. He's talked about it several times wishing that he could follow Ron Wolf, his uh, former uh, the understudy, the one he learned from in Green Bay, Hall of Fame general manager that drafted quarterbacks seemingly every single year. He has not done that in Seattle. They've only picked two of them. So it's pretty obvious who the best and worst picks are. And as far as trying to find a sweet spot, well, you've only picked two. And so that makes it a little bit more difficult to really – come up with a sweet spot to pick quarterbacks when they quite frankly just haven't done it you couldn't really compare two drastically different careers if you wanted to do a best pick and a worst pick on one hand there's russell wilson a really good quarterback for the seahawks probably the best or is the best quarterback in franchise history and then alex mcgaw was the backup quarterback not really, as you said, not much sample, but John Schneider, again, seems like day two is the spot for quarterback. But again, we can't really know because there's only two picks. Yeah, this is one that we can't necessarily have. I mean, we can discuss how great Russell Wilson was in his 10 years. He owns every passing record for the Seahawks. He was a pro bowler nine times in those 10 years, had one second team all pro selection, Won a Super Bowl, led the team to another Super Bowl. And then Alex Magoo, poor Alex Magoo, he's a seventh-round pick. And most quarterbacks that are seventh-round picks have the same end story that he did. And he played on the practice squad, never dressed for a game for the Seahawks, dressed for a few games with other teams, but never played a single snap. And so he's never played a single snap in the NFL. That's typical of a seventh-round pick. So obviously – there's no other options here. That's your best pick and your worst pick. It's really difficult to say there's a sweet spot. I guess you could say day two because that's where Russell Wilson came from, but there's not a lot of data to work with. Now, running back, that is a much different situation. The Seahawks have picked over the years 12 running backs, and I think that it's pretty easy to say who the best pick is here. You can argue with me if you'd like, but Chris Carson as the 249th overall selection, a two-time 1,000-yard rusher, more than 20 rushing touchdowns in his career, and he won some Player of the Month awards. I mean, for a seventh-round pick, he had remarkable success, even if his career ended shorter than he wanted to because of a neck injury. He was fantastic. And then worst pick, I went based on value here. Third-round picks, 
you're expecting those guys to end up becoming key contributors out of the backfield. And C.J. Procise, there were flashes, but you want to talk about a player that had injury issues. He just could not stay on the field. So to me, he is the worst running back that they picked just because of how early they selected him. There's been some other ones that didn't pan out in the draft. But really what I think is interesting, you know, most of the position groups here, Dallas, you can kind of pinpoint, well, these rounds have been where the Seahawks have had the most success. You can't really do that at running back because they've been able to find guys throughout the draft. Rashad Penny was really good when he was healthy. So I'm not going to call that one a bust, but you got him in the first round. Ken Walker, the third, looks like he's going to be a stud second round pick. Christian Michael was the other end of the spectrum, an absolute bust as a second round pick. Alex Collins was a decent fifth round selection. They've picked some guys on day three that have contributed like Travis Homer and DJ Dallas. And so this really feels like this is one of those position groups that John Schneider has been able to find some guys throughout the draft. He's also found some busts throughout the draft as well. It's a very interesting position because the Seahawks have spent a lot of picks at this running back position. And as you said, throughout the draft, there's been hits and there's been misses early round. You have guys like Rashad Penny, Ken Walker, as you said. And then the late round, you got guys like Chris Carson, Alice Collins, DJ Dallas, Travis Homer. But I would have to agree with you in terms of best picks and worst picks. Carson brought back that energy in Seattle. A lot of fans remember in 2018 when the Seahawks went into that full running game mode and were the top rushing team in the NFL. And that was the first year. If I remember correctly, that was the first year of Schottenheimer being the offensive coordinator in Seattle. Yeah. And Chris Carson brought that Marshawn Lynch-like energy. Now, he wasn't the same player, obviously, in terms of talent. Marshawn Lynch is a generational running back. But Chris Carson brought that energy. The crowd would get pumped up. Just the physicality he would run with, it was reminiscent of Marshawn Lynch beast mode. And C.J. Procise... Corbin, as you said, I think we all remember that New England game in 2016 when CJ Procise was going off. Had He's going to be the next all-pro, yeah. We all thought that he – because Procise, the whole thing about him was he was a running back that was a good running back, but he had receiver-like skill at 220 pounds. And that New England game, it showed the promise. It was just never able to recreate that due to the injury luck that he had. Yeah, he couldn't stay healthy, and it was unfortunate. I mean, people talk about Rashad Penny's injury woes. DJ Procise was on another tangent in that regard. Like, he couldn't go more than a couple snaps without getting injured, and it was unfortunate because he was a very talented player. But third-round pick that obviously did not work out for the Seahawks. Now, let's talk receivers, and this is one of the position groups. I like to call it a top-heavy position group because – as much as the Seahawks have excelled at certain positions, finding late round gems, there's a few exceptions to receiver. David Moore had a really solid run in Seattle's a seventh round pick. Derek Young might be the next guy that checks off that box. But generally speaking at receiver, the Seahawks have had their best success in early rounds. We saw DK Metcalf. They traded up to get him in the second round. What he's become an all pro caliber receiver, Tyler Lockett, in my opinion, the best pick they've had here as a third round selection, 69th overall trading up to get him four straight thousand yard seasons, four straight years of at least eight receiving touchdowns. He's the only receiving the NFL that checks off both those boxes in the last four years. And so that to me is the best pick of the bunch. As far as worst picks, I'm just going to say this, Dallas. John Schneider, this is my advice for you. Just 
if you're getting an inkling to draft a receiver in the fourth round, please, for the love of God, do not do it because it has been a death sentence for players. Chris Harper in 2013, and I liked Chris Harper coming out of Kansas State. He was a good player. He didn't even make the roster coming out of training camp and was out of the league within two years. Gary Jennings Jr. is now playing in the XFL, never played a snap for the Seahawks at a fourth-round pick. He was in the same draft as DK Metcalf. They were hoping both those guys were going to contribute. Chris Durham back in 2010, another big receiver from Georgia that the Seahawks really liked, had three catches in a Seahawks uniform before ending up in Detroit, was out of the league a couple years later. So generally speaking, uh, fourth round has been the worst position for them to draft. That is the not-so-sweet spot. That's the rotten cherry on top of your Sunday. That has been the fourth round. Day three just generally has not treated the Seahawks well with receivers. This is a position, Dallas, that it looks like if you're John Schneider and you want to pick a receiver, you can pick one late too. But if you're really wanting a difference maker, get one early. This is a wide receiver class that has a good amount of depth. Especially in this class, there's going to be a good amount of picks able to make in round two, maybe back half of round one, potentially even round three. But as you said, stay away from round four wide receivers. It has been like literally a sentence to death. They have they could have drafted Calvin Johnson in the fourth round. It would have it Calvin worked. Johnson would have caught two passes and been out of the NFL. It wouldn't have worked. Yes. It's just and I've I've seen somewhere actually across the NFL that fourth round picks at wide receiver, you're essentially pretty much burning the pick. It's a waste of a pick. And that's across the NFL, not just John Snyder. So it's very interesting to me that John Snyder has had this happen in a while. But for me, the best pick has to be DK Metcalf. And Tyler Lockett, great wide receiver, and he was an excellent pick as well. But DK Metcalf, I feel, especially at the time, Doug Baldwin freshly retiring. There's a lot of question marks going into the wide receiving core. They trade up in the draft. DK Metcalf falls to the last pick of the second round. And the Seahawks trade up to snag him. That, to me, was the best pick. And to me, it revitalized the Seahawks culture. And for worst pick, as you said, I had to go with Gary Jennings. In the XFL, out the league for a couple of years, and was expected to do a lot, especially in the same draft as DK Metcalf. Yeah, he was a player that a lot of people were excited about, more so even than Chris uh, Harper coming out of Kansas State back in 2013. He was a player that a lot of people thought he might make an impact day one, just like DK Metcalf. And he just struggled in the preseason and training camp. It just it was clear early on that at minimum he was going to be a project, if not a guy that they just quickly discarded. And that ended up being what happened. They moved on from him very quickly. And so again, Fourth round, just stay away. If you want to draft one of the fifth round, go for it. But just stay away from the fourth round, the cursed round for receivers. Now, moving over to tight end, they have not picked as many tight ends over the years. Seven selected by John Schneider. And this is one in particular that you can hone in on two rounds where the Seahawks have had the most success in this position. They have not drafted any stars Luke Wilson would be the closest. And obviously he was a star on the practice field with Techno Thursday and was a really solid regional type. Had a seven years, was a very productive player, won a Super Bowl, participated in the other one. But this is a pretty poor group of tight ends overall. Will Disley's been a good fourth round pick. 
Wilson was a good fifth round pick. But away from that, they haven't had much success drafting tight ends. Colby Parkinson could end up changing things. He had a solid year last year. If he plays well in 2023, maybe he ends up on the right side of the scope here with Wilson and Disley being one of the better tight end picks. But they've had a lot of misses too. Nick Vanette in the third round, I haven't said that name for a long time, really struggled, battled back injuries, wasn't productive, ended up being traded before his rookie deal was over with to the Steelers. Anthony McCoy looked like he was going to be a good player, and then he tore both of his Achilles tendons, never was the same. So that was an unfortunate situation. But really, this has been a fourth and fifth round position, which I think is interesting considering the depth in this year's tight end class. That might be a sweet spot in this year's class for them to add a tight end to a group that's a pretty good one already right now. The fourth and fifth round tight ends that the Seahawks have drafted, it seems to me that they've been role players. Yeah. Like you're specifically looking for a skill set that they bring. Luke Wilson, it was his extra blocking. Parkinson, it's his height, especially being a red zone threat. Disley, inline blocker, former defensive lineman at University of Washington. But to me, as you said, best pick got to be Luke Wilson. Star on the practice field was, in terms of culture, he was a culture guy in the locker room for a yeah. while. Nick Vanette in the third round for the worst pick. I think that's kind of unquestioned. Just I even at the time, Nick Vanette, I didn't really understand the pick. Nick Vanette was a limited athletic tight end. He was going to win mostly off of size and really won a lot in college off of strength. That didn't translate to the NFL. And it was unfortunate. But as you said, the Seahawks, I think with this draft class specifically at tight end, there's the ability that you can get a guy in the fourth and fifth round that in most cases in other years would probably be a second, third round pick. Yeah, that's the nice thing about this draft class is that you are going to get some players that I think last year probably would have been easy day to pick because it was not a good tight end class last year. This year, you can get some of those really good players into day three, maybe even late day three, you can find some quality because tight end is not the most prioritized position. And it is a very deep group with a lot of pr proven commodities, a lot of different types of tight ends. You got pass catchers, you got guys that can block, you got guys that can do a little bit of everything. And so even though it's not a need for Seattle necessarily, uh, you've got to be looking towards the future as well when you're drafting. And so I could see Seattle doing that. And fourth and fifth round, that has been the spot where Schneider has had the most success finding, as you said, role guys at tight end that ended up being really solid players when they've been healthy, at least in the case of Will Disley. Last but not least, offensive line. Everybody knows the discussion around John Schneider in the front office with the maligned protection, the poor offensive line in front of Russell Wilson all these years. And you look at the draft record and you can kind of understand why that has been the case. This has been the worst offensive position group for the Seahawks in terms of finding proven players. But they have had some success in the first round. Last year, they got Charles Cross. We think he's going to be a very good player, had a good rookie season. Russell Okung, away from injuries, was a solid starting left tackle, started in both Super Bowls for the Seahawks. And even Jermaine Effetti, and I know you and I do not agree on this one, but Jermaine Effetti was a good starter, a solid starter. I'm not going to say good, a solid starter for four years. He was durably improved during his four years. I have seen a lot worse day one picks at the offensive line position, late first rounders than Jermaine Fetty. And so maybe that just tells you what Seattle's drafting has been like, that he's, in my opinion, not one of their worst picks, but 
certainly he was not as bad, I think, as some fans think. My worst pick is John Moffitt. And when you are a day two selection that becomes more known for your public indecency charges than what you did on a football field, uh, urinating in public, when you become known for that more than what you did on the football field, it probably is safe to say that your football career did not pan out. And so I think that that is easily the worst pick that they made in terms of value. A, a guy they picked on day two that was supposed to be a long-term starter, potentially a guard, that obviously did not pan out. But it seems like when you look at Seattle's record, it's a lot like receiver here. They've had a lot of their success drafting early, particularly in the first round. Day three selections they have had very few guys that have made much of an impact along the offensive line. The offensive line, as you just stated, this is a position where the Seahawks have had great output when they've used premium picks as the input. The Seahawks, what they've been able to do with their first-round picks on the offensive line has been actually really good. They got Russell Lacoon. Now, if he would be my best pick. He's my best pick as long with you. But for my worst pick is you had John Moffitt. And I was debating between a guy, James Carpenter or Jermaine Fetty. James Carpenter, as you stated before the show started, we were talking about this, had to switch positions, was constantly out of shape and showing up to camp out of shape. Therefore, before his rookie deal even was over, was drafting the first round to be a tackle, had to move to guard. But for me... My worst pick has to be Jermaine Fetty. And I don't think it's necessarily specifically the player. It's the context. This was coming in. This was after multiple seasons of Russell, or Russell Wilson was running for his life. The Seahawks offensive line was struggling. And Jermaine Fetty was needed. You needed a tackle to come in, especially in the first round. And Jermaine Fetty in that draft was not projected to be a first round pick was not projected to be a second round pick. A lot of people projected him to be a third, fourth round pick and was drafted really high because of his athletic tools. As you said, he developed later, but to me, I think in terms of value, that was one of the misses of John Schneider. Yeah, and a lot of people would agree with you. I just don't necessarily think that he was as bad as what a lot of fans think. He became a punching bag because of the way that offensive line played, and they had a lot of other issues yeah. on that offensive line. And he ended up doing some decent things when he went to Chicago for a brief while, too. So he's had a solid NFL career. But first-rounders, you're hoping you're getting difference makers and long-term starters. That ended up not being the case there. And so I guess you can make arguments on both sides of the coin. But generally speaking, Seattle has had the most success in the first three rounds, Damian Lewis and Abe Lucas being two recent ones that were day two picks that did well. First rounders, a little bit better hit rate. They have found very little on day three, with the exception of J.R. Sweezy, who was a defensive tackle that they moved to guard in the seventh round. That would be one exception. But most of their day three picks haven't even lasted on the roster on the offensive line. So it's been tough sledding for the Seahawks to draft and develop players in that regard. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Dallas at Dallas C. Cooper. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and all major podcast platforms to ensure that you don't miss a single episode. Coming up on tomorrow's Blue Friday episode, I'll be joined by Nick Lee and the two of us will be playing What's the Odds looking at free agency production for the players the Seahawks have signed this offseason. You won't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday and thanks for listening 
Go Hawks. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On Podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.